fire in the blood. Fire in the blood.
much whiter than snow. There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Since sins are lost in this life-giving flow, there's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonderful power in the blood. seated. There's power in the blood. The reason that there's power in the blood is because that blood is what was shed for us to purchase our redemption, to purchase our salvation. In Romans 1, 16, it says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power, it's the dunamis, it's the power of God's ability, God's strength, the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There truly is power in the blood because it cleanses us from sin once and for all. It's a said, done deal. So if you know the Lord this morning, there's something that we can always take joy and take rejoicing in, knowing that our God is with us, our God has redeemed us, and we can bring him honor and worship with a whole heart. Just like we ought to be doing. There's nothing better that we should be doing than to be in God's house, lifting his name, bringing him honor, bringing him praise. It's a simple command. Gather together with, the, with other saints, with his church, and bring him worship. It's simple as that. We can follow that, and I think there's nothing better that we can do than to be in God's house on Sunday morning. Amen. If you're new, if you're a guest with us today, I want to introduce you to our communication card. It's going to be somewhere underneath your table, your chair there. If you can fill that out, we just want to get in contact with you and just thank you for coming uh, to worship with us this morning. We're, no, we're by all means not a perfect church, but uh, what I can say that we are a friendly church and we are a church that knows the Lord and we are a church that loves the Lord and the gospel is our passion, what we do here. It's during this time of our service, we want to take a reflection off our own position, off our own hearts before we, come in, before we continue. See, I can't seem to make it a day, let alone any time, without failing the Lord in some way or another. So before I come and bring him worship, I need to do so with a clean heart. 
We quote it all the time because I think this is Christian living 101. It comes from 1 John 1, 9. This is to Christians. This is to those who know the Lord, to the brethren. It says, if we confess, that word homologeo, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And sometimes I wonder when I look at that passage, what is it that makes God faithful and just to forgive us of our sins? What is that based upon? It's based upon his promise, his promise from salvation. If you know the Lord, if because of the cross, not only are you a child of God, it's actually our means of how we get to stay in fellowship with God. That's what the cross accomplished. And God simply says, those who know him, if you would simply confess, get on the same page with God, acknowledge your sin before him confessing and forsaking, recognizing, Lord, I'm sorry I did this. Please forgive me. Help me to do better. It's not a matter of just, hey, God, I sinned again. Amen. Goodbye. Confession is about recognizing your position before God, that you sin against the Holy God, and it hurts and separates your fellowship. Just like with my own dad, a lot of times, especially as I became a father myself, we learn when we start relating to our Heavenly Father like we do our earthly parents. My dad and I, are I'm always going to be his son, but there's sometimes we're not on par with each other. And until one of us, or usually me, comes clean about something and just brings it, something's not going to get restored there. It's like, all of a sudden, I need to borrow $5 from my dad. Well, I got in a bad argument with my dad the night before. Hey, dad, can you give me $5? Like, what do you need $5 for? You haven't even come clean about the disrespect from last night. Hey, dad, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have acted that way. Could you please forgive me? Would you please accept me back? See, that's the kind of confession and kind of heart your God wants you to have with him. Being real with him, communicating to him as your heavenly father. And he is a good, good father. But because I can't seem to do it within myself, I need to depend on Christ. So I want to invite you guys to pray with me as we continue our service. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for being such an awesome God that we can't, our words and our language just can't fathom truly how amazing and wonderful uh, you are. And the mystery that, the mystery of your grace, Lord, how bringing all us together in one foot and all of us on equal footing uh, with, with one another because of what you've done on the cross. And so, Father, the gift of salvation is a gift that's just an immeasurable debt that we owe, Lord. And so may we only owe a debt of love to you in return, uh, knowing that you are an awesome God and you delight in our praises and you delight in our worship. And so thank you, Lord, for our, our family that we have here. And it's only possible because of what you did. So Lord, I just ask as we continue our service, Lord, it would flow from our hearts and just to forgive us of other, other things that we need to just leave at the door. So may we make that decision, make that commitment here and now that we're not going to let anything get in the way of your worship and forget anything of your glory. So empty of ourselves, Lord, and let us rely and look to you in all these things. We love you and thank you for being an awesome, amazing God day by day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We have a special for you guys this morning. Good morning. So there's a part in this song where I'm going to invite y'all to all sing with me um, and the praise team as well. So... Um, you can go ahead.
y'all real quick when I started when I was thinking about doing this song um, the Lord was speaking to me and um, you know when when hard things come into our life sometimes I think we forget who we are and sometimes I think we forget who who God is and when we remember those things I think um, we can sing it is well with my soul like despite our circumstances, despite anything that we're going, that's going on in this world. Um, so I just wanted to share that this morning with you guys. I'll turn it up a bit. Grander earth is quakes before Moved by the sound of his voice And the seas that are shaken and stirred Can be calmed and broken from my regard Through it all, through it all My eyes are on you Through it all, through it all It is real Still know his name. 
continue our worship. Let's all continue standing. I'm straight in my sorrows. I'm 
thousand times I fail, still your mercy remains. Should I stumble again, still I'm caught in your grace, everlasting. Your light will shine when all else fades, never ending. Your glory goes beyond all
seated. Because it is the last Sunday of the month, the kiddos will be staying out here with us this morning. Good morning, Lighthouse. Same question every week. Are you ready for the Word of God this morning? This may not be the part you came for, but this is the part that's going to do you the most good. Well, I don't know. Those praises sure did me a lot of good, so we'll see. We'll see. In Matthew chapter 7... In verse number 21, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The title of the message today is Making Sure. Making Sure. I've known this passage of Scripture for a lot of years, and I'm very aware of those claiming to cast out demons and those claiming to do apparent miracles of all sorts and various other seemingly wonderful works and doing that all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I've had little trouble recognizing these for who they are and what they preach and what they teach. Can you imagine how utterly horrible it would be to spend your whole life doing what you thought to be serving the Lord, only to finally hear when you stand before him, depart from me, I never knew you. Until this last week, I thought I clearly understood who all these were. But now I realize that the group to which Jesus sends this message is far larger, much bigger than I had previously thought. A few days ago, I was given the privilege of teaching a Bible lesson to an impressive young woman who was raised in a real Baptist church, very knowledgeable of her Bible, even more so than many Christians of far greater years. Yet for all that she had learned she still did not have a full assurance that she was really saved, that she really was going to heaven. She thought she was. She just really wasn't sure. I want to say to you as boldly as I know how, it's just not enough to think you're going to heaven. It's not. Our God commands us that we make sure that we're going to heaven. 
It's commanded several places in the scripture. Uh, the one I'm going to read to you here in just a moment uh, is going to be our actual main text for the day. I dare say that probably every one of this group to which Jesus will inevitably speak these words recorded in Matthew 7, every one of them, I'm pretty sure, thought they were going to heaven. After all, they'd been in church, they'd done all these wonderful things. But the Lord tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 and in verse number 10, which is actually our primary text for, the, for today, Peter said, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. There are other, there are other very similar scriptures. 1 John 5.13 tells us very clearly, John said, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 tells us to prove all things. And I think at top of that list would be that we're really saved and hold fast to that which is good. 2 Corinthians 13 and 5, we're commanded to examine yourselves, God said, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves have that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. These people, this huge group of people that Jesus tells us about the time that he's going to speak these words to them, they all thought they were going to heaven. But they were, in fact, reprobates. You see, there are a lot of people, maybe some of you, I mean, you really can't, you really can't get a group of people this large together, and I know this is not a huge group, but it's more than a handful. And there, without somebody in the crowd being not really sure where they stand. A lot of people who are going to have their best life now, you've heard that phrase before, and they're going to become a better you, and because it's your time, and and all these books are written about all those wonderful things. Could be that those are some of the wonderful works that people were talking about who were trying to tell Jesus they really ought to be admitted to the kingdom. You know, sometimes God blesses us so much that it's easy to think, well, I must be saved. Look at, look at all the things God is doing in my life. Look at all the things he's given me. Well, after all, you know, you've been in church your whole life and God's taking care of you and he's blessing you. Isn't that proof that you're saved? And then one day, when you close your eyes in death, what you see before you is going to cause all of that to become meaningless, completely and utterly meaningless. I'm going to read for you something today that's not from the Bible. I'm going to read to you what the Jews have been taught from Adam on down about what happens after you die. 
Josephus writes this. Now, as to Hades, that's the word that's translated hell in your New Testament most often, wherein the souls of the righteous and unrighteous are detained. Now, I'll stop there for a moment. And you think that Hades is just for the unrighteous, and today it is. But before Jesus was crucified and descended into the lower parts of the earth and led out the captives, the righteous captives, and took them to heaven with him, this statement was absolutely true. So I start again. Now as to Hades, wherein the souls of the righteous and unrighteous are detained, it is necessary to speak of it. Hades is a place in the world, not regularly finished, a subterraneous region wherein the light of this world does not shine. In this region, there, are, there is a certain place set apart as a lake of unquenchable fire, whereinto we suppose no one uh, hath hitherto been cast. But it is prepared for a day afore-determined by God in the which the, the one righteous sentence shall deservedly be passed upon all men. For there is one descent into this region at whose gate we believe there stands an archangel with a host. A gate which when those pass through that are conducted down by the angels appointed over their souls, they do not go the same way, but the just are guided to the right hand and are led with hymns sung by the angels appointed over that place unto a region of light in which the just have dwelt from the beginning of the world, not constrained by necessity, but ever enjoying the prospect of the good things they see, and rejoice in the expectation of those new enjoyments which will be peculiar to every one of them, and esteeming those things beyond what we have here, with whom there is no place of toil, no burning heat, no piercing cold, nor are any briars there, but the countenance of the just which they see always smiles them while they wait for that rest and eternal new life in heaven which is to succeed this region. This place we call the bosom of Abraham. You've heard that term before. But as to the unjust, they are dragged by force to the left hand by the angels allotted for their punishment, no longer going with a good will, but as prisoners driven by violence, to whom are sent the angels appointed over them to reproach them and threaten them with their terrible looks and to thrust them still downwards. Now those angels that are set over these souls drag them into the neighborhood of hell itself who when they are hard by it continually hear the noise of it and do not stand clear of the hot vapor itself. But when they have a near view of this spectacle as of a terrible and exceeding great prospect of fire, they are struck with a fearful expectation of a future judgment and in effect punished thereby. And not only so, but where they, they see the place or choir of the fathers and of the just, uh, even hereby are they punished, for a chaos deep and large is fixed between them, insomuch that a man that hath compassion upon them cannot be admitted, 
nor can one that is unjust, if he were bold enough to attempt it, pass over it. These, the unjust, belong to these, the unjust, belong the unquenchable fire, and that without end, and a certain fiery worm never dying, nor and not destroying the body, but continuing its eruption out of the body with never ceasing grief. Neither will sleep give ease to these men, nor will the night afford them comfort. Death will not free them from their punishment, nor will the interceding prayers of their kindred profit them. For the just are no longer seen by them, nor are they thought worthy of remembrance. Now what I have just read to you are a few excerpts from the writings of a man by the name of Flavius Josephus. He was a Jewish historian. He was a man very religious and zealous. He was a Jew. He was not a Christian, at least not at the pre-Calvary time of this particular writing. What he is passing along to us are the teachings of the prophets of God to the Jews that were passed down through many generations of that culture and of that people. These writings are thought by some to be simply Jewish fables. Since this is not from the Bible, I would say so as well, except that most of this description was corroborated by Jesus himself in the New Testament. We learn that the bosom of Abraham is now uninhabited because Christ descended there after the crucifixion and brought out the just, taking them to heaven itself. First Peter chapter 3 and in verse 18 says, For Christ hath also suffered, uh, once suffered for sins, that the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, and being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. The bosom of Abraham was called paradise by Jesus when he hung on the cross, and it was a wonderful place as we read, but it was still a prison. That prison by the Jews was called the bosom of Abraham. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8 says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? I'd like for you to compare what I just read to Jesus' description of Hades in the New Testament. He says this in Luke chapter 16 and verse number 19. He says, There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And by the way, let me just make a quick point here. Preachers all over this country, all over the world, talk about this being one of the parables of Jesus. This is not a parable. This is a literal account of a rich man and a poor man that died, and his name was Lazarus. And there was a beggar, a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. 
And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. That's the same account that was given to the Jews by the prophets of God and recorded for us by Josephus. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would, uh, hang on a moment, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Jesus said in Mark 9, 43, if thine hand offend thee, cut it off. That's a little bit drastic, don't you think? It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, wherein their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Same description, only this one's in your Bible and given to you by Jesus himself. So do you think that these writings are still, they're just merely Jewish fables? You will find out for sure. God's advice is that you find out now while something can still be done about it. We have read, what we've read is what sinners deserve. It's what I deserve. And it's what you deserve. Do you agree? Are you smart enough to know that's the truth? It's what Jesus died to save us from. He desired to save us from what we deserve. I believe in having a great life now, and I love teaching God's principles of success, and I especially rejoice in seeing new believers come to experience God's blessing in their lives. It's all wonderful, as He is always wonderful. But solving your problems and your heartaches and fixing your relationships and your finances and the various crises that come along, compared to eternity, is like a a cold compared to cancer. There's no comparison. You need to know for sure that you're born again. You need to know for sure that you're saved, that you're redeemed, that you're justified, that you're in Christ, and that you're going to heaven. If there's one thing I understand well, if there's one doctrine, Bible doctrine, that I clearly know well, it's called soteriology. It's the doctrine of salvation 
It's the doctrine of how to know for sure that you're going to heaven. And I try to always adjust my opinion to whatever I learned that God's opinion is. So you hope you're saved. You think you're saved. You're pretty sure that you're saved. I have an educated opinion about this. It's a factual one. The only people going to heaven who do not know for sure that they're going to heaven before they die are little babies who are unaccountable and those who are mentally the same. Those are the only people that are going to heaven who aren't sure about it. And I'm telling you as a friend who loves you, and I love you because Jesus loves you, and he told me to love whoever he loves. If you're not sure you're, you're going, now hear me. If you're not sure you're going, you're not going. It's that simple. And you need above every other need in your life to do something about it and to do it now while you still can. We're all going to close our eyes in death someday. Oh, it may not be literal. It may be somebody else that comes along and closes them. But we're all going to die. And God commands us, commands us, that we make our calling and election sure. I want you to consider first what is in this world, what is actually sure? Do you feel like you're okay? Amen? I, I know you. I know nearly everybody in here. There's a few that I've just met this morning, but I know most of you somewhat well. And I know that you feel like you're okay. So I want to ask you, are your feelings sure? Can you count on your feelings for what's real? Jeremiah said, you know what he said about the heart. 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, let's, let's ask, who can't know it? That would be you. The Bible says that your heart cannot be trusted. So what kind, of, what kind of track record do you have on your heart being trustworthy? Have you, have you ever believed strongly? I mean, really strongly about something? And uh, I mean, so sure in your heart you just couldn't be wrong, and then that something, whatever it was, ended up deceiving you. That ever happened to you? Some of you know all about it. Maybe that person you fell in love with. You're going to bring that up, are you? Okay. Or maybe that one you married. You were so sure. Well, you were, or you wouldn't have got married. Maybe that business investment that you thought was a 
sure thing. That ever happen? You know that money you don't have any longer? You need something a whole lot more dependable than your feelings to know that you're going to heaven. What you need is the Word of God. You see, the Word of God is the only sure foundation that there is. There is no other. All I can do with the time I have left today is tell you, actually, I don't have any time left, but I'm going to take some anyway. I won't take as much as last week, though. All I can do with the time that I have left is to tell you what the Bible says about this. And that's really not enough time. So if you will allow us, we will show you the evidence, mountains of evidence, that prove beyond any doubt that you can implicitly trust what the Bible says. Peter, who heard the literal voice of God, now I, that's got to be the that's got to be the coolest thing that ever happened to most anybody. I mean, to hear God's voice from heaven, it's a deep voice. I'm glad I don't have a really high voice, so you know, because preaching the word of God, you kind of need a deep voice. But the reason the reason I think it was a deep voice is because some heard it and thought that it was thunder. That's a deep voice. Peter heard the voice of God and says that the Scriptures are even more sure than the literal voice of God. You want a sure thing, you're going to have to look to the Word of God for it. Second Peter 1, verse 18, he said, And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture, what is that? That's the written word is of any private or one man's interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time but the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The written word of God is our sure foundation. Second Timothy chapter 2, study. Awana kids, Awana leaders, study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now we love that verse. Approved workmen are not ashamed. What do those first letters spell? That's your wanna. That's it. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. That foundation is the Word of God. 1 John 5, 3, These things have I written unto you. It's written in the Word of God that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There's only one way, only one, to know for sure that you're saved. You know how you do it? And we, we will help you with this. You must compare what you have done to be saved. 
If you're saved, you had to do something to get saved because you sure didn't start out saved. Do you understand that? Do you understand that you started out lost? You compare what you did to be saved with what the Bible says you must do to be saved, and if they match perfectly, then you know you're saved. And if they don't match, then you know you need to get saved. It's actually pretty simple. If they match, you have it in writing from God that you're saved. Consider what's sure and what's not. The Bible, the Word of God is sure. Next, consider your calling. 2 Peter 1.10 Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. This calling of which you are to make sure is your invitation from the Lord. If the word is klesis in Greek, it literally means an invitation. Have you been invited into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior? Have you? You don't know? Well, let's fix that. Jesus invites you to come. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, because I did all the work. Now, that's not what he said, but that's true. And my burden is light. The Spirit and the bride say come. You might have heard this from Revelation last week. Revelation Twenty-two, sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that is a th- heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. If you're, not, if you're still not sure, let me, let me settle it for you. On behalf of the head of this church, and that is Jesus, and I am his representative, his messenger. On behalf of our head, I hereby invite you to come to heaven with the rest of us. So now you have your invitation. The fact that you're listening to this invitation is in itself evidence that you are called. If you're called, it means you're invited into the glorious kingdom of our Lord. This is an invitation you do not want to turn down. There's no guarantee you're ever going to have another one. This is the one. Does not the Holy Spirit speak to you, to your heart, to that inner being, that inner person, when I talk about how Jesus died in your place, when I talk about how He took your sin upon Himself, He took your sins to the grave, And that's where he left them and he rose from the dead in victory over your sin, over death and hell and the grave itself. Do you not feel the power of God when we speak these words and talk about this amazing thing that took place for you? That's God by his spirit inviting you to the kingdom. Folks, you have been called. Doubt it not. Next, the Bible says, consider your election. Oh, there's a lot of people got a lot to say about election. 
We got an election coming up. What, what's going to happen when the election comes and, and you go vote? What we're doing as a nation, we're selecting who we want to be president or whatever the case may be. So consider your election. Old Testament and New Testament, there are a little bit more than 25 references to election with many more using a synonym, which is the same word, but it's translated chosen. This word election is ekloge. It means selection. It's real simple. That's what you're going to do when you go to the polls. You're going to select a candidate. You're going to elect a candidate. Same term. Most of these 25 references speak of God having chosen Jesus or having chosen us. Let me read this. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the stranger scattered, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. 1 Peter 2, 6. Wherefore also is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Romans 8.28. Don't we love Romans 8.28? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. And that's still a process that's taking place. What does divine election mean? God having chosen us and saved us and provided for us is is all done, as we just read, according to his foreknowledge. Since he being God foreknows who will trust him and who will not, he has chosen various wonderful things for those whom he knows will place their trust in Jesus. Most of you here today have placed your trust in Jesus. And God has predetermined some absolutely incredible, wonderful things for your life. Some of you have been experiencing them already. Some of you here today are yet to place your trust in Jesus Christ. But God knows whether you will or whether you won't. And for those who will, he's prepared an incredible life for you that you sure don't want to miss out on. In verse 10 of our text, however, he speaks of a different kind of election or selection. 2 Peter 1 and verse 10 says, Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Now based on the structure of this sentence, you are to give diligence to make your calling and whose election? Your election, sure. That's right, your election. Your selection. This verse is not talking about God selecting you and having predetermined everything so you have no decision to make. This is talking about your selecting Jesus instead of rejecting Jesus. God has called you and he has invited you 
And you must now choose, you must elect to place your trust in Jesus to save you from your sin. He's the only one who can do it. So I'm down to the conclusion now. And some of your stomachs are rumbling and you're glad that I'm about to wrap it up. So what's, what's it going to be? Do you now understand enough to be saved? Well, I think so. I hope so. I, there we are again. Let's, come, let's find out what the Word of God says. First of all, are you confident that the Bible really is the Word of God? Are you sure about this? Yes? Okay, I like that. Yes, yes, yes back there. Sounds like that song we were singing. That it's true, that it's reliable. If you're not sure, I can help you. I really can. Do you understand that the Jesus of the Bible is God himself in flesh? God having taken on the body of a man, and when he did that, he came to this world and he paid for your sins with his own blood. Do you know that to be true? Are you sure? You're going to have to be sure about this. If so, then you understand enough to be saved. I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 1 how sinners get saved. Here's how it works. It says in verse 12 that we should be the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. In whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, which you heard today right here in this place. In whom also after that you believe, that word means put your trust in, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. You've heard the truth. You said you believe the Bible, and you rightly so should believe the Bible. It's God's word. You've heard how that Christ died and was buried and rose again, paying for your sins. Did he pay for your sins or not? Yeah, he did. So all that's left for you to do is put your trust in what he did for you on the cross. It's okay, Lord, I finally understand. And so I'm handing it over to you. I'm just going to depend on what you did on the cross for me. I'm not going to depend on my goodness or my living it or anything else that has to do with me. I'm handing my future, my eternity, over to you. Now you can use words or not. It doesn't make any difference because God sees your heart. Once you understand the gospel, then you place your trust in Jesus to save you. And folks, that's it. There's nothing else for you to do. Once you place your trust in Him, He will take it from there. And you can count on Him. He will always do what He said. And by the way, if you're wondering about that young woman who was unsure she was saved, she's no longer unsure. She put her trust in Jesus just like you did if you're saved and just like you should if you're not. We're done.
making sure. You can make sure today. You could, if you will. If you're not sure, why should you spend another day not being sure? I don't, I don't know that any of us have ever got a, a notice that we're going to die on a certain date in our future. Death always seems to come as a surprise. I know that Jesus is going to come as a surprise. In a day that you think not, he said, the trump of God will sound, the dead in Christ will rise first, and those of us who remain will rise to meet him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And you've all heard, heard about the book and, read, and watched the movie Left Behind. And every one of us that's not sure we're saved, guess what? You're going to be left behind. And you're, gonna, you're not going to like what you're going to have to face being left behind. And there's absolutely no reason in this universe that you should be left behind. No reason for it. Let's stand. We're going to have a song of invitation. If you want to come forward like they do in other churches, we don't seem to do much of that here, but if you'd like to do that, I'll make you a deal. You come down here and tell me that you want to make sure, and we'll schedule a set of Bible classes where we can sit down privately take the time that's necessary to do it right and I will show you and let you see for yourself in the word of God how to be absolutely sure you're going to heaven you're not going to get a better deal than that and it's, I know it's not an exclusive offer and it's not going to expire unless I do but you should still not wait as we sing, I exalt thee, O Lord. For thou 